0: Hey, folks, I'm here with Brandon. He's going to talk to you about this week's special sponsor
1: of the show. This week's special sponsor is Cascadia Association Football Federation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's all I got. Uh, no, go go for it. Okay. The Cascadia Association Football Federation CAF is a all-volunteer team being put together to fly out to London to represent the Pacific Northwest in the first ever Kanifa World Cup that has teams from every single continent Kanifa World Cup is for non-FIFA aligned teams and cultural reasons like Cascadia like Cascadia Kurdistan Tibet so if you want to see Cascadia just pummel the shit out of Tibet
0: (laughs) I love this idea how how does everybody get involved
1: Uh, if you want to get involved CascadiaFootball.org. Learn more. We're excited to be sending a team. we got players, coaches, we've got some cool swag jerseys, and the tournament itself will be May 30th through June 10th. And uh, you can find out more CascadiaFootball.org.
0: Our sponsor this week is CascadiaFootball.org, and this is UpZones. Things are changing.
2: Things are changing. You have to Alexa's help,
0: so Things are changing. Things
3: are changing can't say it, but you know it's To you Alex yourself, things are changing. To you
2: Alex
0: yourself, to you Alex yourself. Happiest of Mondays. Here we are. Another week, another episode. Can't stop the train, can you? We have uh, two interesting guests this week that I think are connected in a in a special kind of way around, well, we'll get to that. Linda Brenneman, founder of Hugo House. She'll come on first. She came into the studio about two weeks ago. We uh, we brought this one out of the archives. And then Dr. Teresa Swanson, founder of March for Science Seattle, which is happening this Saturday. They were great. I mean, I, you'll see, I, I think I went to some dark places with, uh, with Linda. Uh, <laughs> and I think both of them, at the end of the day, there was this like, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but... There's so much going on right now in the world around the information we consume and how uh, whether a single datum or a single piece of information is even trustworthy. And what ended up happening over the course of these two conversations is I started to see how something like uh, literature, arts, civic engagement, um, conversation, speech, all the stuff that Linda is concerned with, uh, overlaps with science, decision-making, policy, all the stuff that Teresa is concerned with, and it just had me; my head was spinning. It really was. There's so much to think about in our civic society right now uh, around those issues of just taking in information, trusting it, trusting experts. What's an expert? <laughs> and we got a good um, we got a good salt joke too. So take that for what it's worth. I don't know if I got exactly what I wanted to out of the interviews. That's the mission here, or the journey anyway, is to keep getting closer to that but it was certainly something to hear two completely diametrically opposed, effectively founders, different generations, different objectives, different timelines, talk through their process and their experience through the lens of what we're trying to do here. Check out Linda First. appreciate it.
2: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you.
0: It's been a interesting couple of years with the growth and the change in Seattle, but I think you have an even bigger perspective. I'm curious before we even jump into any specifics, what do you think has changed about the uh, Seattle literary, you know, arts and kind of letters scene and you know, especially with respect to how many people are coming.
2: Coming into the scene. Yeah, or coming or into think, the city. I mean, even if they're the in business yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we started Hugo House in 1996, there wasn't a whole lot going on in Seattle in terms of organizations. Mm -hmm. It was Seattle Arts and Lectures and what was going on at the University of Washington with the creative writing program. And now it's so rich. Yeah. There's people starting their own reading series all over the place and poetry slams everywhere. I know about those. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) And there's Hugo House thriving, I think. And... I just it's its a great scene I think
0: it feels like it's almost well it almost feels like you're saying it's an improved that there's just many more resources for writers is that a fair is that a fair take
2: I don't think there's ever enough resources for writers but I think there's more going on there's mm-hmm. more ways to get your work out there more ways to meet other people I mean even the meetup groups yeah a lot of informal things going on too
0: so you grew up here in this area
2: I grew up in Eastern Washington Okay. I was a Richland bomber.
0: I don't know what that is.
2: Oh, yeah. okay. My dad worked at Hanford, which Mm -hmm. was the nuclear site. They made the plutonium that was in the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki Mm -hmm. during Mm -hmm. World War II. Yeah, it was just a there was a lot of boosterism, believe it or not. And so the high school team is still named the bombers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there, which is I'm not proud of at all. I hate
0: but um, I don't think there's a uh, a single town or city that doesn't have at least one problematic mascot name, right? <laughs> we had the Redman. <laughs> back yeah. home back in New York. Yeah. Yeah. That just wouldn't yeah. fly today. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, this is unfortunately still there over there. Okay. If you're hearing me, Richland, change
0: your uh We have change a couple listeners in Eastern Washington, <laughs> uh, maybe all three of them will hear you. Yeah.
2: Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I I grew up there and moved over here to go to the University of Washington. Okay,
0: okay. And you've been writing really since then, right? Since since you were young.
2: Yeah, my first degree was in communications from the UW and I worked as a technical writer. Mm-hmm. You know, computer manuals yep. and pulp mill
0: manuals
2: and, you know, I worked for Boeing for three years. Okay, and, gotcha.
0: Yeah. And so then, and that's, so we were pay the bills. Right. But you've been, I mean, I know you've been a, a literary writer for most of that time as well.
2: Well, I started that actually when I started having kids, okay. so that wasn't until, well, the late 80s, early 90s. And yeah, I started with poetry, and then I just have written essays, short Mm -hmm. stories.
0: So this wasn't something that, like you're in high school and you gotta have a fight with your parents about whether you're gonna major in English. This was actually pretty just a a very adult decision that you were able to make much later in that process for yourself.
2: Yeah, you know, I worked my way through college. Mm -hmm. My parents helped me a little bit in the beginning, but I worked for the post office. I would work ninety days and earn enough money to go back to school.
0: Oh my! And okay.
2: Yeah, so. So you were doing it in shifts. I was kind of doing what I what I wanted to do in that regard, right? Mm-hmm. But it was so much cheaper back then to right. go to a public college. Right.
0: Even by even with inflation, it was just a cheaper thing to do. I
2: right. mean, I think tuition was like three hundred and some dollars a quarter, <laughs> and rent was like two hundred bucks a month. Right. And I was, I got married really young, too, so there were two of us. And sure. Yeah. Sure. So husband and an artist? My husband at that time was a, um, he was a computer programmer. Okay. Yeah. So he was uh, one of the early founders of Aldous Corporation, and then he founded another software company called Vizio, which was sold to Microsoft. Uh, we know about Vizio, yeah. They're, right.
0: They're right here. Okay. So he was, he was, you, you, you guys are pretty poor at this point.
2: We were poor back then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's no. my joke. Yeah, no, I'm yeah. just kidding.
0: Um, so you're doing okay. That's that's good to know. So, you know, you're in your 20s, or maybe what, late 20s, early 30s, you start to have a couple kids, and you're reassessing what you want to do with your life, so you're just going to try this writing thing. You feel the call to do this?
2: I think I needed to do it to, like, remain sane, maybe. I don't know. I was staying home with the kids, and I had always been interested in creative writing, and it was just something I did to kind of keep myself going. And then, of course, when I started learning to write poetry with Francis McHugh, mm-hmm. who was the first executive director of Hugo House.
0: Right. Co-founder with yourself. Right.
2: Right, uh, And along with Andrea Lewis, who was actually ends up being the number 10 employee at Microsoft, which is an interesting factoid.
0: Wow. So it seems like there's a lot of yeah cross-pollination between Seattle Tech and literature, too, because you see that in a lot of do numbers. you really yeah I'll talk to people and they'll say oh yeah I'm I'm a slam poet but I work at Amazon yeah and there's a false duality that these are two different worlds but in fact I think there's a lot more overlap than one might think I wouldn't be
2: surprised I mean I think a lot of people do creative writing as their creative outlet yeah, you know right. and uh, there's a lot of creative people in in technology right
0: true Factual. makes sense walk me through what caused Hugo House to spring from your mind
2: well My former husband, you know, had, we'd made a lot of money in the software business in the 80s and 90s. -hmm. And one of the things I said to him was, I'd really like to do something that's my own project. And he was very supportive of that. And I just started looking around at what kind of literary project I wanted to do and hit upon the literary center as something that I felt that we needed in Seattle Mm -hmm. and visited the loft in Minneapolis. and, And I thought, wow, we really need this here. And it did seem like there was a demand for oh yeah. A place. Yeah. And
0: at this point so was it just that you had these relationships with the other two co founders through writing circles or you know, what was it that drew them to the kind of the moment as well?
2: Well, I had met Frances when I was finishing up a creative writing degree. I went back to school and just started taking classes in the English department, which is I just recommend that to anybody who who wants to enjoy an education. I was able to go back as a fifth year student. Mm-hmm. Um, which meant I could take any undergraduate course. Super senior. Oh my God, super (laughs) senior. All the the great literature courses. I just kept taking classes until they started saying, now you have to graduate. You can't just hang out here forever. So I was looking for someone to help me with this, supervise my senior project. And Frances McHugh had just won the women's, Barnard New Women's Poetry Prize. Oh wow, okay. So I went to see her and she said she didn't have time, but... Then I was able to study with her privately. And at that time, she was doing a little reading series called the Rendezvous Reading Series. And when this idea came up, she was the person I really wanted to run it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so you put work in. You This was a recruiting effort.
2: Yeah, it wasn't too hard to get her. I mean.
0: Once she, she kind of knew what you were all yeah. about. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you took the one class with her and then. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. That's interesting. So that was the, what, about 95? Yeah, that would be about 95. Right, about 95. So now you're talking 30 years, right? 30 plus years? Wow, yeah. Uh, well, no 20, no. 20, years. Excuse yeah, me. Yeah, 25. 25. yeah. yep. Yeah. So we'll, we'll edit out how bad at math I am. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll leave it. I don't know. But so you're talking about quarter century. How has Hugo House changed with respect to Seattle? Surely it's become more central. I mean, I first moved here and it felt like that was where the center of gravity was for at least kind of official literature. What has the journey been?
2: Wow, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I have the best perspective on it. I mean, at first, we were just trying a bunch of stuff out and experimenting and offering classes. And maybe it was about a year into it, and Frances looked at me and she said, you know what, we can't kill this thing if we want to. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh my God, yeah. This it just is, had light and heat, and it yeah, was going to take off no matter right, what. Yeah. Right, right. And then you know really famous writers took notice of the place and started coming through town and I mean early on we said you know somewhere you know 20 years from now wouldn't it be great if Seamus Heaney came to Hugo House and then he was there and like a year later he came. Yeah it was really exciting. I spent a lot of time I provided the startup funding for Hugo House but I spent a lot of time in the first two, three, four years raising money mm-hmm. for Hugo House mm-hmm. because as a five oh one C three nonprofit you have to have money from a lot of different funding sources. So you had to have earned income, anything. you had to have you you know that too? Yeah. Oh yeah. You have to have a range of individuals donating. You mm-hmm. can't just get your money from one place. But I loved you know, introducing Hugo House to other donors in the city and, mm-hmm. and, and doing all that work. But, but everywhere I went, I would talk about it and they'd be like, what, what is that? <laughs> they didn't know and had ever heard of it.
0: So what would you tell somebody who's trying to get something funded that they just freaking just really believe in, right? Mm-hmm. But doesn't know how to crack that, again, that demographic or that community of donors. How do they put themselves in front of the right people?
2: Boy, it's hard. I mean, it was kind of, it was easier for me because I was able to donate to other projects. So my favorite strategy was to go to somebody's fundraiser and get into conversation with someone. And Hugo House would come up kind of naturally. And that's kind of how I spread the word. Mm -hmm. But. I mean, I suppose you can do that on a on a smaller scale. I mean, I think supporting other people's projects is a great way to get your project funded one way or another, following up every lead that you get. I have coffee with people all the time. And if I like their project, I donate, you know. It seems daunting, but I think that if you, I call it pick and shovel work. If you just keep sure. after it, you keep talking to people you're excited about what you're doing.
0: There you go. That's a big one. right yeah. There.
2: yeah, that, that you, you can find the funding for it. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. But you have to be passionate about it and it's harder to fundraise when you're in a down period creatively or when you're in a down period with your projects. My take.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: yeah. Really interesting. So, okay. So that, that's going on for, you know, 20 years. You're sounds like you're remarried. Yeah. Yeah. You got kids.
2: I have, Two grown kids, two grown, um, right. yeah. a son who's 30 and a daughter who's 20, 27, 27. can't believe it, yeah.
0: <laughs> that's your baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are they writers?
2: Um, I mean, I think they are. They they won't identify themselves as writers. My daughter is an animator, actually. Oh. Yeah. Cool. She's graduated from California College of the Arts. And working
0: here? Working in L.A.? Working in San Francisco? Um, right now
2: she's here and um, kind of trying to make a life as an artist. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, it's kind of tough, but, Well, she's yeah. got to
0: get your fundraising chops.
2: Yeah. <laughs> now she's, she's getting it. Yeah. Yeah. She is. Yeah. Good. Good. What are you working on now? Um, writing-wise or project-wise or? You tell that? me. Okay. Well, I'm doing some writing. I'm doing, I've kind of fallen in love with science fiction again after reading a lot of it as a kid. Mm-hmm. So I consume a ton of science fiction and I'm writing some science fiction. Um, it's a on good th-
0: moment for that, I think, nationally, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're kind of yeah. living dystopia, partly as a result of what the internet kind of makes possible, but also makes possible, right, in the, in the right. worst sense of the word. So that's this is a great time for that.
2: Right. Yeah yeah I don't know if I agree that it's a dystopia, but yeah
0: well well <laughs> you're the guest. What do you got?
2: I think that there are a lot of things that are as good or better as than they've ever been, but that is fair we have our our expectations are different, you know, of course, I mean, if you're in prison, things are not good, and there's a lot of people in prison. There's a lot of things that are completely wrong, like the guy in the White house and um, but but I think there's some things that are right as well.
0: Can we trust information? That's that's what I that's where my mind goes. Oh really? Right now. Yeah. Can yeah. We, do you think we can tru- You think on a day-to-day basis, any given piece of information? You think you can trust it as much as you could 30 years ago, 40 years ago?
2: I think there's some information you can pretty much trust. Mm. Um, s- census information, statistics about this and that. You know. Yeah scientific studies. That's
0: true. Yeah, you have to know where it's coming from. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Something that Richard Hugo said that I wanted to ask you about and he said you owe reality nothing and the truth about your feelings everything and that is such a beautiful sentiment but it is also it underlies so much of the political problem we have right now. Think about what Trumpism is, right? It's people who don't think they owe reality anything and just how they feel. Mm -hmm. How, How does that how does that Richard Hugo quote refract back to you now in 2018?
2: I mean, in that, in that case of that quote, I think context is everything. Was it Triggering Town? that was? It, it was.
0: Yeah, that's right.
2: He's talking about how important imagination is to writing. You know, he's not talking about everyday life.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. right.
2: Fortunately. Right.
0: Yeah. Maybe that's crumbling a little bit, right? That distinction. That's part of the problem. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think?
2: About reality? Yeah. About reality. God, I hope not. I mean, I, I think we do have to fight against all the misinformation that's mm. out there and all the crazy shit that's going on. The stupid stuff people say. But, no, I think there is a reality that we can rely on.
0: Yeah. No, me too. I'm actually... In a, uh, quite an optimist it when truth really be told, I am <laughs> good no I know I've asked you some dark questions <laughs> we, we took this one to a dark place but the fact is like it's just interesting that when we think about like science fiction that's what triggered this for me is that style is so much about anxiety right technology related anxiety generally and that's what maybe more than anything I think defines this age is technology related anxiety
2: yeah that's interesting yeah. yeah could be
0: could be well I, w- do you have anything coming out
2: Well, I've I've got a couple novels that I'm trying to finish and market, but -hmm. okay, we'll see what happens. I don't know. Well,
0: let me know. We'll we'll post them up on the site. All right, thank you. That's
2: nice. Yeah.
0: Um, Well, how about project-wise? You got anything coming up that folks should know about?
2: Well, you know, Hugo House is moving into a new building. Mm -hmm. So we we took the same building that or the same site where Hugo House has historically been, and
0: right up on the park here. Right,
2: right up on Cal Anderson Park, and it was an old building and it wasn't really that safe or secure or good for Hugo House's needs at the time. So we decided to replace the building and now the Hugo House will have the commercial floor, most of the commercial floor of this apartment building up here. And, oh, and I'm excited about the project because I feel like it's, a, it's an interesting partnership between philanthropists who are Ted Linda Johnson and I own the building together. And government funding, and foundation funding, and a nonprofit making this project happen, and, and keeping the cultural institution in the city.
0: Who's going to be above the, the Hugo House?
2: It'll be market rate apartments. So just whoever, yeah, yeah like whoever. Okay, wow.
0: That's I the hope kind of
2: st- there'll be writers
0: that want to go to Hugo House too. Yeah, you? yeah. That, well, they can sell some some work maybe downstairs yeah. or something. Yeah, that's that's so fascinating because that's actually a topic. We'll get arts in here, but when I Get civic stuff in here. It's always about like upzoning, hence the name of the podcast. It's it's very often we talk about density, we talk about multi use. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool that to to see those two things coming together. When yeah. did that come into into your brain, or when when did that start to happen?
2: Well, I mean, I bought the building in 1996. We had considered putting Hugo House into an old mansion up across from St Mark's Church, mm-hmm. and. We had a huge fight with the neighborhood. They did not want a writer's center there. And so
0: <laughs> why is that?
2: Yeah, I was we were mystified by it at the time, but basically they wanted that building or that old mansion to stay as a residence. Mm-hmm. So we had this huge fight. So I started looking for a building that had commercial zoning and a parking lot and the building Hugo Houses ended up in that was all it had that was any good in my
1: opinion (laughs) it was
2: like a parking lot you know but it had a lot of problems it was old and rickety it was all patched together it had been added on to and there were some really cool things about it but I never felt like it would necessarily stand up to a earthquake a bad earthquake or a fire Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. and as Heger House grew it just wasn't it wasn't the right place. And I wanted the, you know, I wanted the Hugo House people to have a better place to do the work. And so I started thinking and talking to a lot of different people about how to best develop the property. And over the course of about five years and probably about 50 meetings with a lot of different advisors and people, including like Capitol Hill housing and a lot of people like that, we came up with the, what we came up with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as the development scheme. And I think it's the right thing. I think we're able to provide the space to Hugo House at a a very low price. And it'll be a great space for them them into the future.
0: We like to end every show with a little segment we call, If You Care About, You Should. Fill in the blanks.
2: Okay, I'll say, if you care about your city, give to local nonprofits. Or support local nonprofits in, in any way you can.
0: Sure, if you don't have money, volunteer. Right. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Linda Brennerman. Thank you. Come on back anytime. It was fun. Thanks. Yeah. That was Linda. Like I said, got a little off the beaten path. It was pretty cool to hear her talking about what they're going to be doing over in Cal Anderson. All right. Now, Dr. Teresa Swanson. science memes isn't those there really
3: like translate to Jesus isn't there
0: an story. NACL joke
3: there's all sorts isn't there of salt like jokes? a famous there's all sorts of salt jokes
0: okay hey we're talking <laughs> let's just get in on awesome. it we're talking right. Either, have you been here have you lived here your whole life or no
3: I moved to Seattle in 2011 to start grad school at UW UW.
0: Yeah, okay, so, so you are a Seattle scientist
3: y- yes yeah. Field. I am trained in pharmacology which is not the person behind the counter that actually gives you the drugs. Mm -hmm. I study how the drugs work.
0: Right, so psilocybin... (laughs) No. Uh,
3: I wish. That would uh, be pretty cool. That would be cool. No. No, I did my graduate research on drugs that are generally used for high blood pressure or heart attacks. Okay. So, pretty common ones.
0: So, you're getting involved in politics in two directions, because all of the high blood pressure this administration is giving everyone who lives (sighs) in Seattle... So you have, you're actually helping us in two ways, that's <laughs> fantastic.
3: Yeah, that was my graduate work. But now I work for um, a graduate program at UW, the Molecular and Cellular Biology uh, PhD program. And I do their outreach and communications. Okay. So oh, I've okay. actually kind of switched focuses after okay. I graduated.
0: Got it. So you're a, a, you're like a PhD in science. In pharmacology, In pharmacology yeah. so Yep, you're i my You're like Doctor Swanson. Yes, I am. I, I think you're the first official doctor we've had. Nice. On the show, we've had some MAs, MFAs, and stuff. Mm-hmm. No, no doctors. Um, nice. That's fantastic. So I can. That's really just about. What you can me, put that on makes your me yeah. Feel good at, <laughs> <laughs> Before the show, we talked a little bit about scientists historically not engaging. Yeah. Maybe as civilians, as non-scientists, you go vote for the person, the right. candidate, but there wasn't sort of a collective science engagement in the policy world. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what it is in your kind of journey that brought you to March for Science.
3: So to me, I think that science isn't useful unless people understand it. So I guess in the past people, scientists have not been involved in the activist world or even in their general community because science was pretty well funded and it was pretty well respected. Scientists didn't really have to fight to establish their legitimacy. We just
0: sort of had a default, oh, he's a scientist, she's right. a scientist, I'm sure that's a whole other thing.
3: <laughs> that's a whole other Yeah, thing. <laughs> uh,
0: But so they're, they're, they're peer reviewed, they're... Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, there was they, a lot of trust in science. They went
0: through 10 years of aggressive schooling, mm-hmm. secondary schooling. When, so that's the trust factor. Yes. And we can talk a lot about we've other guests, including uh, one of our other guests today. We've been having a lot of conversations about trusting information, mm-hmm. right? And I'm assuming that the same p- trends nationally, globally around calling our information sources into question probably are having an impact on the general public. Faith in and deference to what science says with respect to yeah. policy. Yeah, is that There's fair
3: so many different examples of that playing out. <laughs> First, the most obvious one that people come to is the anti-vax movement. Oh gosh. Right. Yeah. That entire movement is based on the work of a single guy who has been shown to be a fraud.
0: Well, didn't he even come out? this Yes, far? He he's is totally later.
3: owned it, but he's still cashing in on the movement. Of course. Outward. So that that entire movement is based on one guy, you know, doing. Illegitimate research and, mm-hmm. and fudging his data, mm-hmm. yet a large portion of people still believe that vaccines are these horrible things that the government uses to you know I, I don't I don't even know what they believe anymore. Right? It's,
0: yeah. 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 So that's an interesting question. Since there are these bad actors, and I think that you and I can sit here and totally acknowledge mm-hmm. that, that this is some incredibly small percentage of kind of the science and profession, right? But since they do exist, mm-hmm. how does a civilian person come to science and say, "Yeah, that I trust that because that was done at a university, or I trust that because X,Y,Z?
3: I mean, we're talking a very small percentage of scientists that actually go out and change their data in the ways that Wakefield did. He went, like, above and beyond and just threw everything at his paper. Uh, Most people wouldn't be that brave. In general, science has a consensus, right? You're not just trusting one scientist on one single topic. You get a lot of people working on the same topic, and they come to the same conclusions. Mm -hmm. And and so you're kind of crowdsourcing that opinion, if you want to think of it in that way. And these people have put a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort into doing it correctly and doing it in a way where they're constantly questioning themselves and their assumptions. And so it's not just someone setting up an experiment to come up with the answer they want. It's, it's multiple people setting up multiple experiments to test the same thing, the same thing and they come right. to the same conclusion. Repeatability,
0: yes. right? uh, Repe- falsifiability, yep.
3: Yep. reproducibility.
0: Reproducibility. That's um, the what I was looking yes. for,
3: yeah. <laughs> and then everything is peer-reviewed, right? When you, you can do experiments all day long, but they don't mean anything unless the that information is put out into the world, mm-hmm. right? And the way we do that is by publishing our papers. But you cannot publish a paper unless it's peer-reviewed. Mm-hmm. And so that process is you write up your your results you know how you did the experiments what the results were Mm -hmm. you put them in a nice pretty format for people to read and then you submit it to a journal and that journal is gonna have usually around three other scientists read through that paper or the
0: experts in that field yes yes
3: so there'll be scientists that are experts in the field You've studied so essentially. These are your colleagues, right? Mm-hmm. These are the people who understand the work that you're doing, and they'll read through and they'll call you out if you did something wrong or you missed something or you overinterpreted, mm-hmm. right? So they they double check your work before it even hits any sort of publication. Before status. it hits theaters. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Got it. So <laughs> um, there's there's a lot of double checks, you know. There's a lot yeah. of, of balances in that
0: way. And how do we? And this we talked about a little earlier mm-hmm. too. The sense in which we can only really ever know something for sure through the scientific method that itself comes under attack sometimes. And that, that comes from like a religious kind of usually mm-hmm. is like, well, how do you know that? Right? So what would you say to someone who just says, I believe whether it is religious or whether it's frankly, this kind of like nationalistic, Mm -hmm. whatever the hell it is, this Trumpianism thing that's going on right now, which is not religious in the traditional sense, but it is not reason-based either. Right. What would you say to someone like that? Whereas what privileges the scientific way of knowing things over other ways of knowing things? So
3: the great thing about science is that it's an active process Mm -hmm. and it's never done. Mm -hmm. So we can look back through history and think about what science told us, you know, three, four or five hundred years ago. And it's not the same thing that we know now, mm-hmm. but it's changed because things have been tested, because things have been proven right or proven wrong. And and so when someone comes to you and says, well, you, you can't know that for sure. And it's like, no, but given the evidence I have, given what I have in front of me, this is the best explanation. And this is the explanation that is working in whatever system or for whatever purpose I'm using it for. Now they can try to poke holes in that, and that's great. You know, please ask questions challenge those scientific ideas because that's how science moves forward that's how we learn more mm-hmm. about anything around us culturally
0: so let me let me just follow up there mm-hmm. so culturally though the things that are getting holes poked in them are things that have had holes poked in them for 70 years or more in some cases right or mm-hmm. 100 years or more be it I mean, you're still seeing natural selection you're still seeing I mean climate change, that's another yeah. one, right? These are these are people with very big pocketbooks have been poking holes in those findings for seventy years, fifty years, hundred years.
3: They're not using scientific methods to poke holes. Mm-hmm. They're using they're using marketing strategies mm-hmm. and psychology. They're not using actual scientific method or they're not using methods that are rigorous. What is a rigorous or, method? So we talk about the scientific method, the process of forming hypotheses and finding a way to test them that is not that is not bias, mm-hmm. right? With the scientific method what you're trying to do is control a situation and only have one variable, right? Mm. And that's the that's really the only way you're going to be able to test a single thing is to control everything else around it and change that one variable and see what happens. Right. Right, and and the people with big pocketbooks aren't doing that with the science they're doing that with people's opinions you know they're they're using marketing to be like okay well what sounds good to people or or how can we take this small piece of scientific information and spin it in a way that doesn't really apply to it but sounds pretty legitimate Mm -hmm. Um, and that happens all the time and and those things Catch on in people's brains, right? It's easy to believe those things because your brain automatically, or I guess I shouldn't say automatically, but logically, some of these things seem like they would make sense.
0: Right. That's why we do science, though. right? It's to hijack yeah. that process.
3: Yeah, the things that the people with the pocketbooks are saying aren't tested. They're just trying to sell you something. Sure.
0: And and is that so? I actually s- cut you off, and I apologize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're what brings you to organizing? Right. Why, what brings full me circle, to organizing? Is it that um, stuff going on? Or?
3: Yeah, so first off, like, I'm just an extrovert. <laughs> so yelling about something is like, friends. yeah, yelling about something is, is a, a passion of mine. But I came to activism because throughout my scientific career and training, I saw that science was in this ivory tower. Scientists were very disconnected from the community and mm. vice versa. Mm-hmm. People in the general public don't understand what happens on a day-to-day basis in a scientific lab and they don't understand the scientific process they don't understand the peer review process Mm -hmm. and scientists don't share that Mm -hmm. they don't share their discoveries Mm -hmm. you know in a way that can be processed by the average person you know we share them with each other we publish our results and that's great but those, those papers aren't written in a way that the average person can pick up that paper and understand what's going on. How's that
0: impacting Seattle?
3: Seattle has a pretty strong scientific community and the community here does a lot of outreach mm-hmm. and is pretty well supported here mm-hmm. just because of the type of people that live in Seattle. So Seattle's actually a pretty good atmosphere when we talk about connecting scientists and the community. Mm-hmm. But so, why why so why March? Why March? Yeah, Why March? Because uh, Seattle doesn't live in a bubble. Right. We live in, you know, we're in the U.S. And that is not the case everywhere, mm-hmm. you know. We are a tiny little blue bubble and people here tend to be very, very well educated. And with that education comes that trust in science. But that's not the case throughout the country. That's not the case throughout, you know, the the general public we live in. And so this march isn't about just the local community. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, it's about our country and it's about the values of the country and what we want to have be important as a part of our policy making decisions in the future.
0: For the listeners, the march is Saturday. April fourteenth. April fourteenth. Yes. One day before we all pay our taxes. <laughs> yes. What do you what do you want people to do? I mean, come out, sure, right? Yes. I assume.
3: I would love if people came out and marched with us. Um, raise your voice, tell people how much you love science. You know, with this march we have a few different goals. One being just to bring the scientific community and the general public together mm-hmm. in one space mm-hmm. to appreciate the work that science does. Because science is really it's it's of public interest. It's a public endeavor. The majority of science is funded by your taxes that Mm -hmm. you will be paying the next day.
0: (laughs) Good call. Good
3: one. (laughs) So so you should care where that money is going and what it's doing. But we also want to inspire future scientists. The scientific community right now is at the same juncture that the rest of our country is at with talking about uh, women in science and people of color in science.
2: Mm.
3: The scientific community has had the same issues and the same problems mm-hmm. that our country has had you know they're they're not different and so we want to be here to inspire those younger scientists we want to be here to inspire those little girls and those you know those children of color to grow up and bring their perspectives to our community so you want
0: the listeners to bring their kids that's, that's, oh of course that's where the of real course. yes we would
3: love for the kids to show up the kids uh, they uh, last year the kids had some of the best signs and they were the brightest faces
0: out there Mm -hmm.
3: you know we I loved seeing all the pictures of the kids
0: and then and then on the next day what
3: and then on the next day well you should pay your taxes first (laughs) because um, that's how we're going to be able to do our science research But on the next day, you know, maybe have a scientific conversation with Mm -hmm. someone. Mm -hmm. You know, ask or even just challenge someone on something they said. You know, science is all about critical thinking, and that's a piece that we've lost in our country. People don't critically think about the information that's given to them. Mm -hmm. They just see a headline and think, oh, well, it was published in the news, so it must be true.
0: What do we do? (laughs) What do we do there? How do we get critical thinking? So how do you get a 45-year-old patience <laughs>
3: you you it it comes through conversation and patience yeah which can be difficult for scientists they're not generally practiced in having these conversations uh-huh. they're not yeah. generally practiced in having to defend themselves to someone who is outside of the scientific community
0: there's a there's a there's a yeah i want to say diplomacy or Translation that has to happen. I think a lot of there the is a translation,
3: yeah. um, and that translation is actually what has kind of to circle back and actually finally answer your question. Um, that translation part uh-huh. is what's brought me to the march. Got it. I went through my scientific training, and I saw all of this this wealth of Magic information. right?
0: That's what we decided you do. Right? <laughs> <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> Brandon, we got We got to hook up after the, after, oh, the, yeah. after the interview. <laughs> No, I so, <laughs> uh, hear it's scientific research. Yeah, yeah, you got to know what you're studying, right? How do I studying, feel right? <laughs> before and after? Yep observation one, one variable different yeah That's right.
3: so we have this wealth of information right. in the scientific community and so much of it can be used to improve people's day to day lives mm-hmm. right
0: but people don't understand but people don't yeah.
3: understand yeah. that and the scientists themselves have a hard time taking their very complicated very intricate research right. and presenting it in a way for someone like presenting it in a way that someone can understand without those ten years yeah. of education yeah. of research behind them.
0: So maybe it's a challenge too to like the listeners get 1% more literate on on yeah. what's happening in yeah. science right now. And if you don't feel like you trust science, maybe it is a challenge to, to, to give it a try, to, to listen and say, what what can I test against like a, a set yeah. of repeatable, falsifiable principles today? Yeah.
3: yeah. Or find a scientist and talk to them. <laughs> we, we are yeah. all over Seattle. Yeah. yeah.
0: April 14th is going to be a good start, I think.
3: Yeah. I, please come and talk to all of the scientists that will be there awesome. because there will be so many.
0: We like to end every show with a little segment we call If You Care About you should yes. fill in the blanks
3: all right if you care about science you should support your local community and vote for evidence-based policy
0: okay i love it yeah see you at the march yes on april 14th april 14th Theresa swanson dr swanson thank
3: you so much take
0: care <laughs> that was theresa swanson of march for science seattle get off your backsides and go march this Saturday. There was also Hugo House co-founder, Linda Brenneman. Never been there? Get to Hugo House! This week's show was sponsored by Cascadia Football. Do the slashes and the W's and check them out at cascadiafootball.org. All music by the Subcons. Dope opening poem sample by Anthony McPherson. Thanks to our sand engineers, Brandon and Naboo. I'm your host, Ian Martinez, and this has been Upzones, a Cascadia Underground production. See you next week.